can get it on SoundCloud, Spread and Central Church uh, on SoundCloud.com. And um, uh, that established a lot of the, the big principles uh, that men and women are made equal, um, but different. And um, we're going to continue that, that theme, we're going to look at it, and um, in order to gather my thoughts, I pray that the Lord will be speaking through us as we look at different parts of his word, uh, be speaking to us as we look at different parts of his word. Um, I'm going to pray here. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you are good. Thank you that you made a world which uh, you said was good, and when you created men and women, in all our diversity, you said it was very good. And although we've messed up this world, we thank you that you haven't left us in the dark, that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ, and you promised him through the Old Testament scriptures and into the new and we now can enjoy fullness of life in Him. We pray by your Holy Spirit, please, would you come and speak to us. Holy Spirit, we pray to you that you would breathe new life into the dry bones of our, the way we live, the way we ignore you. For those who don't know you, we pray that you would breathe new life into them, perhaps for the first time, and they would see the wonder of the gospel. And as we look at this, um, question of how we live out the manhood and womanhood you've given us, that it wouldn't be a divisive issue, but it would be an exciting and wonderful truth that we get to see how kind you are to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you've got uh, an outline on your sheet, um, and I think before I continue, I'm going to ask. Uh, Someone to volunteer to read Genesis 2 and 3 on the sheets. No, I'm feeling red. Dan, you have to read the two, two passages. No. I've got, I've just got my glasses under instruction of the man. There you are. You've got your glasses, so you can read the Bible. Do you want to do the first bit, Genesis 2? Um, and then, Kat, do you want to read Genesis 2? Genesis 2.15 The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to, to work and take care of it. 16 And the Lord God commands the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. 17 But you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And when you eat from it, you will certainly die. 18, the Lord God said, it is good for the man to be alone. It is, sorry, it is not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for the man to be alone. It will make a helper suitable for him. 24, this is why a man leads his father and mother and, and is united to his wife and, and they become one flesh. 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, You may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you may not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Thanks very much, Kat. Um, so uh, you can look at all the extra bits in there. Those are the bits we're going to kind of come back to again and again and focus on a little bit. Um, and um, uh, as we go through, but there's lots of other passages we'll look at. Some are printed on the inside of your sheets. You've got an outline there. Um, uh, some we'll turn to and look up. Um, the this question of God's good design for mankind, uh, why uh, preach on it now? Well, um, because I think there's a, there's a confusion, as I said last week, in our society. Um, hundred years ago, we used to be in a patriarchal or hierarchical society. hundred years ago, women couldn't even vote. Um, and in those days, no one questioned the difference between men and women. Um, in fact, they emphasised them probably too much, uh, certainly too much, and restricting women from voting is ridiculous. Um, and um, there's been a wonderful rise in uh, women's rights over the last century. Uh, but back then, uh, there was no question of difference, but there was a question over equality. We fought that question over equality, and now there is total agreement on equality, rightly so. But there are now questions over difference. Uh, is there any difference between men and women? And you end up with a kind of ultra-feminist egalitarianism which says that there's no difference between men and women except their plumbing and probably science can overcome that. Um, and we need to eradicate any idea that uh, men and women um, uh, are different. And what we want to do in, in the midst of that confusion where we're agreeing with the, the horrible patriarchy of the past and the, and the um, abuse of women, um, and we're looking at today's society and asking, well, what are we supposed to believe? We want to look back to God's word and see that God talks about something that's different both to patriarchy and abuse of women and different to there's no difference between them. And uh, it's been called in uh, churches and by theologians complementarianism, uh, which means that men and women complement <laughs> one another. Uh, and I use the example of like food complements it on plate. If you just have one item of food on your plate, it might be quite boring. But if you have diverse items of food on your plate, then it complements each other. Um, not to be confused with complementing um, head on how good he's looking today. Which is spelled differently. So complementarianism says that there is total equality, but a difference in what role. And we want to be informed just by God's word. We want to work out <coughs> God himself rather than by what the society preaches to us around us. Because in some parts of the world, you might end up with abuses. In other parts of the world, you might get a denial of difference. And um, one of the things that uh, we, we asked last week, and I want to repeat it this week, is why teach on this now? Why do we want to look at this subject um, surely this is a bit of a minor subject, it's not the main thing, it's not the heart of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Um, uh, sorry, that's my little one. <laughs> um, uh, why, why look at it now? And the first reason is, as we saw last week, because I'm not the minister. So who's the minister of Stratton Central Church? Yeah. Yeah, the members of Stratton Central Church are the ministers. You're the guys who are going to be taking this word out. My job is mainly to equip. I'm also one of the ministers, but no more than any of you. Um, and I want us to therefore be confident as the minister of the church that these truths are good. As we've looked at before, our vision statement is shamelessly pursuing fullness of life in Christ. Well, if we've got a bit of the Bible that we're embarrassed about, how can we do that? Either we rip those pages out of the Bible or we say, well, that's not possible. How can Jesus give us fullness of life if he does something that is abusive to women or isn't fully encouraging? Now, I want us to to see that the greatest joy and fruitfulness in ministry is achieved when the deep, profound differences between men and women that we see in the Bible are celebrated as complements to each other rather than suppressed or dismissed as irrelevant or awkward. We want to shamelessly pursue fullness of life. And also what we'll look at as we get more into the nitty-gritty this week 
is what that means for us as this church. Coming from different backgrounds, some here um, have come from backgrounds where perhaps you didn't even know this was an issue uh, in the churches, or you've heard of all the funny stuff, the politics going on in the Church of England, you think, oh, I don't want anything to do with that. Um, or others have come from conservative backgrounds where they think, well, women shouldn't do this, women shouldn't do that, and so your consciences feel you can't step into this. Well, there are certain things I think that we, we can apply from this, but actually what's amazing about God's word all the way through is there's very little um, uh, of God telling us exactly what to do. Uh, so, for example, if, if you chat to my uh, friend, the imam at Streatham Mosque, he'll tell you exactly how to take your shoes off, um, which ways to walk into a building, uh, how to have your beard, what clothes to wear, and so on, specific, 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 specific. There's very, very little of that in the Bible. There's huge freedom as to what we do. The big question is why we do it. And there's a lot of wonderful principles in the Bible, and we need to understand those principles and then think, how do we live that out in 2017 as Stretton Central Church? Okay, hopefully that's helpful and encouraging and you're excited about looking at this. So we're going to dive in to the bit on your sheets and the title called Biblical Principles. We're going to do a tiny recap of what we saw last week. Point one on your sheets. Creative image. And we saw last uh, week in Genesis 1, which we didn't read this week, we read last week, that men and women are made in the image of God, totally equal, both given authority together to rule over creation, to, uh, to subdue it, to fill it, um, and uh, to, to be productive. The very idea of culture comes from the fact that men and women are created under God to culture the earth. Uh, we're to do that in total equality. And as we zoom in from the, the kind of prologue, the, the introduction of chapter one, we zoom in to chapter two, which we saw a little bit of uh, as uh, Ben and Kat read, um, we see diversity. There's a difference between men and women. Uh, Adam was born first. Um, and then he obviously wasn't self-sufficient. Ben tried to briefly make men self-sufficient. Uh, but rightly corrected as he read again. Uh, it is not good for man to be alone. Men cannot do this on their own. They need a helper. And we saw last week that that word helper isn't uh, cleaner, washer up, pioneer up, uh, doormat. Uh, the word helper is used 19 times in the Bible, and 16 of those are for God. So if you think of God as your cleaner, then um, uh, you might think of women as cleaner. But um, uh, uh, men and women are created equal. Uh, and the, the helper status is a beautiful thing. Um, so much so that at the end of chapter 1, we're told once men and women are created in the image of God, that creation is very good, having been good only up until then. And at the end of chapter 2, you see that on your, on your sheets that Ben read to us, Adam and his wife were both naked. Um, the the uh, metaphor there is more important than whether or not they were literally naked. Um, so let's not argue about that. They were open with one another. There was nothing to hide. And they felt no shame. No shame whatsoever. It was very, very good. So the, the difference between men and women isn't isn't something that's, that's gone wrong with the world, it's something that's beautiful about the world, and things have gone wrong since. But the way men and women are different then gets distorted, the, the image gets distorted. So we're on point two on your sheets. Distorted image, Genesis 3. So men and women together there, feeling no shame. And then chapter 3 begins, now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals. Again, don't, don't worry about whether this is a literal snake or not. The important thing is to notice that Satan embodies, metaphorically or literally, uh, an animal. An animal. And he then approaches a woman. So God gives, makes Adam, gives Adam the command to lovingly uh, look after his wife and to uh, protect and keep the garden. And yet, where does uh, Satan go straight in to um, distort that wonderful good order of God? He takes an animal that men and women were to rule over together in harmony, and the animal then teaches Eve, approaches Eve. 
And actually, we only discover that Adam's even there in verse 6. See, we might have thought Adam wasn't there. But verse 6, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. That's where we discover Adam was with her. But where should we discover Adam was with her? We should discover in verse 1, as Satan, in the form of an animal, approaches Eve, and Adam says, hang on a minute, God has given us a really good command. He said, don't eat from that one tree. We've got everything we can enjoy in this amazing creation, and you're telling us that that one tree is going to make things better for us, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the idea that we can choose for ourselves what is right and wrong, Satan, do you really think we're going to make a better choice than God himself? The one who knows all things? Surely if God says something is right and wrong, then it is right or wrong, and we should enjoy that, and that is fullness of life. But Adam stands back, it's easier to say nothing, isn't it? And so the order is reversed. God's men and women ruling over the animals, no. Animal ruling over women, man not doing anything. And then God is ignored. And as they take from that tree, they say, God, get out. Sin has been summed up, for some physical terms, as shove off God. I'm in charge. No to your rule. And that's what Adam and Aunt Eve do here. They say, shove off God. We're not going to listen to you. We're going to listen to Satan's performance snake. We're going to put ourselves in charge. We're going to decide what is good and evil for ourselves as we go through <coughs> And we're going to say no to your rule over us, God. We're not going to listen to you. And of course, what happens when the branch cuts itself off from the tree? Well, it does. It does. It looks like it's full of life for a while, but actually death enters the world. And our lives are like the bunch of flowers perhaps sitting on your table in your house, making the room look beautiful, but they've only got one direction, which is lit up. So, distorted image. And instead of the complementary equality between men and women, we get the battle of the sexes. We saw this last week, but we need to see it again. <coughs> verse 12, do you see towards the bottom of the back of your sheets? Verse 12 of Genesis chapter 3. God comes to Adam. He approaches Adam and says, what's going on? And Adam, rather than saying, I failed to do what you told me to do and look after the garden and to protect the beautiful wife you've given me, he says what a lot of men say. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. It's her fault. If only you haven't put her with me, then life would be a lot easier. God holds Adam accountable. Battle of the sexes begins. Verse 16, God says, and we're going to come back to this, God says to the woman, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. So that's part of the curse. So as the earth is filled, they're going to get the constant reminder, this is not the world it should be. This is not the world it should be. As life comes, death is there. Life comes, death is there. Pain. With painful labour, you will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. We saw that. We had our Bibles open last week, and we looked on to chapter 4, verse 6. And we saw it's the same phrase as God warning Cain later on. Sin desires to have you, but you must rule over it. That same phrase is used of Cain. So this desire, it's not she'll fancy him and he'll punch her. <coughs> it's she will want to usurp his good and loving God-given authority, and he will crush it. He will crush her. And that's supposed to happen with sin. If sin tries to usurp our authority, we're supposed to crush it. This is, this is a broken, distorted image, as men and women are battling each other. So, then we come on to what we began with last week, uh, toward the end of last week, redeemed image. Redeemed image. God doesn't leave men and women as he should do, to fester and rot on their own. <coughs> but God makes a promise, even early on in the garden, he promises that woman herself will bear a seed, a child, that will crush Satan's head and 
The question then is, who's going to be that seed? Who's going to be that seed? Who's going to be that offspring? Who's going to be the one who's going to come and deal with Satan? And I've put there on your sheets, on the inside of your sheets, um, under point three, Philippians chapter two. Because who comes? Well, of course, it's the Lord Jesus who comes. And he becomes our new model. As we trust in him, we are redeemed. We're restored into relationship with God. And he is our pattern. He is our model. This is for all people, men and women. Philippians chapter 2 says this. Does someone want to read it? In my voice. Penny? Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Thank you. So that's a, a beautiful picture uh, of the reality of what Jesus did. Who being in very nature God, so utterly equal with the Father, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't want to desire authority over the Father but instead humbled himself and became obedient even to death. Okay, so that's a beautiful picture that all of us are to follow. And all of these principles are for men and women. The question is, what primarily has God made us? Because whereas God is self-sufficient in himself, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God is love because he has always loved within himself. Allah can't be love because he requires human beings to be created in order to show any kind of love at all. Whereas God is self-sufficient because he is interdependent within himself. Does that make sense? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in relationship with each other. Now, we are not self-sufficient. It's not good for man to be alone. I cannot enjoy a relationship with myself. And if I try, there's something really sordid and weird about that. It's good for us to be in in diversity in society. And, And so we have different roles, men and women and and then also other different roles in society. And so that is a good and beautiful thing. And with that idea of, of leadership and submission that we're going to come on to is a beautiful reflection of the Father and the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we come on to Ephesians chapter 5. And you need to turn in your Bibles. Everyone got a Bible in front of them? There's a couple of squares down here. Hand up if you need one. Page 1176. Page 1176. Uh, people there? 1176. We all there? Okay. And I'm going to work my way through this little bit by little bit. We saw it a bit last week. There's a few key things that I want to highlight as we go through. Okay, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So as I said, we've all got to do this submission role. We all get to play the Jesus role of submission to one another as we're serving one another, our attitude being the same as that of Christ Jesus. But then it works out in specific ways in the church. That's what Paul's addressing here. It's kind of different relationships within the church. And there we are, verse 22. We start with white. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the (coughs) saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you see they're both husband and wife playing (coughs) Jesus' role. The wife submitting to the husband as head over the church, uh, uh, as head over her, just as Jesus is head of the church. So the, the wife gets to play the role of the church there, but also the role of uh, Christ submitting to the Father. And we'll come on to see that more explicitly uh, in another passage. And the husbands <coughs> to love their wives. It's not about rights and privileges. This is not rights given to men. The command is not to lead, actually even though that's implied, but the command is to love in servant leadership. 
just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up to her. <coughs> so when a man promises that he will love his wife until death has to be part, he means, even if it kills me, I will love this woman. There is nothing that will separate us. There is no kind of direct <coughs> referral to the gooey feeling that may come and go. You don't fall in and out of love with someone. If you promise to love them, you're promising to love them as Christ loved the church. I'm assuming that uh, husbands here all thought your wives were absolutely stunning and beautiful and wonderful on your wedding day. Isn't it amazing to think that Jesus didn't think his bride was stunning on his wedding day? Well, on the engagement day. As he died on the cross, he was dying for his enemies. So however hard marriage gets, husbands are to lay down their wives. But what will happen as this, this self-sacrificial love is given from husbands to wives? What, what will happen? Will there be tensions building up and they've just been forced together artificially because of some weird old tradition? No, let's have a look. Verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her by washing the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now that's actually describing the church, number one. But husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church in this way. And actually, husbands, therefore, we should be asking ourselves, are our wives becoming more and more beautiful as the days go on? Because if they're not, then it's actually primarily our fault. <coughs> Obviously, outwardly, we fade away. Um, it's unlikely that you'll look as good in the cameras uh, as you do on your wedding day. But actually, there's an inward beauty that grows and grows, just as Jesus grows in the church. And husbands, we are primarily responsible. Once we commit to someone to marriage, we are primarily responsible for that person's growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we give ourselves, and we give ourselves. We don't say like Adam, that woman you put here with me, she's screwing everything up, this is blooming hard. There will be times when we feel like saying that. <coughs> but no, we keep sacrificing. You see, verse 28, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we're all members of one body. So here we've got the feeding and caring picture. So the responsibility to take the lead in providing for and protecting the family, the primary responsibility is with the husband. But we know that that cannot mean that we then have to apply it. The man has to be the primary source of income. If you look at Proverbs 31, you look at this amazing wife described, and she's the chief executive of a company, she's doing deals all over the place, I mean, if the man's better than her at business, they're a very, very rich family. <coughs> it doesn't mean that men have to be the primary breadwinners, but they are primarily answerable before the Lord for the feeding and caring of the family, and especially the spiritual care of the family. And so men and dads, we should be taking the lead in learning about how to care for our wives, about getting um, marriage enrichment throughout our married lives and learning tips on parenting, how we can look after our families, we should be taking the lead. And I think already our women in the church are putting us to shame on that, following culture rather than scripture. The women in the church so far have been more proactive in thinking about parenting than the men. Men, let's step up to the plate. I need to do something about this. I'm preaching for myself here. much easier to be like Adam, it doesn't come naturally. much easier to say, oh, let's just let her deal with it. It's her fault. No, we must love and serve. Well, as we look at this passage, I just want you to think through how many practical applications can you see in this passage? Do this, do that. You should wear this, wear that, go to this, go to that, do this, do that. I've given a few examples, but they don't see any in the passage. Things that are constrained by culture. It's striking, isn't it? There are none. 
It's all principle. It's all based on the eternal relationship of Christ and his church. Well, we're going to look onto a passage with practical applications, and we're going to see whether those are just cultural or not, and how those might apply today. So I want you to turn on, turn back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, page 1152, page 1152 in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. <coughs> if anyone's got any burning questions, uh, let me know. Um, we're going to keep going through. There'll be time for questions and discussion later on. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. A- ever, ever wondered why women wear hats at weddings? Ever wondered why we've got that tradition in this country? Well, here we are in this passage. It's answered. <coughs> wonder whether we think it's right or wrong after this. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 2. Paul says, writing to the Corinthians, there are all kinds of issues going on. They've written to him with questions, so there's some things in here where he's answering questions. We don't know exactly what the question was, but most of it's clear, I think. Verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions. Okay, immediately we've got ears alert here, or eyes alert, or whatever we're doing, our senses. Uh, traditions or practice, it could be translated practices, just as I pass them on to you. So immediately we've got something to do here, not just principles to, to think how they apply. Now before Paul mentions though the practice, he gives a principle. Before he says what they should be doing, he gives a principle. He says, verse 3, I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, or wife or husband, and the head of Christ is God. The head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, the head of Christ is God. And you see here, he's setting up an order in the marriage between men and women. So men are head of the wife, they have an authority, in the same way that the father has authority over the son. The head of Christ is God. You could say the head of Christ is the father, the father is often referred to as God, and the son is often referred to as Christ. So the relationship between husband and wife sounds a bit frightening husband's head, wife's uh, under him. Well, it's the same as father and son, so it's a beautiful thing. It's based on God himself. We get to, we get to enact the image of God that God has made us in. Now for a practical application of this beautiful principle. I'm going to work out whether this still applies today. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. So there's women praying or prophesying in the public gathering, so women should be speaking actively, prophesying, speaking God's word into the, the corporate gathering, they should be heard. But, verse 6, if a woman does not cover her head, as she does so, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off, or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head. Why? Why? Well, here's the principle again. Verse 7. A principle of created order. Since he is the image, the man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Hang on a minute, we're thinking, isn't woman also made in the image of God? We saw last week, chapter 1, mm-hmm. verse 26, 27, men and women in the image of God. Mm-hmm. Ah, yes. Do you not notice that? He is in the image of and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Glory kind of uh, reflection. It's hard to know exactly what it means, but actually woman isn't the image and glory of man. Both men and women, mankind, are in the image of God. Um, so it's not about equality here, this is about order. Okay? Just as Father, Son and Holy Spirit are equal, but they have a different order, which is a beautiful thing. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 8. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Okay, another, this is a creation principle. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So woman is man's helper, so there's an order here. It is, verse 10, and this is an application again, this, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her 
own head or a sign of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, wow. we can't be sure at all. Like, all commentators disagree on what this means. There's a sort of little bit of agreement that maybe the Corinthians had this idea that because angels are everywhere serving God in different ways, they're there in the service, and there was kind of accountability to the Corinthian congregation. And Paul's referring to perhaps something they alluded to in their letters at the end. Oh, because the angels, because the angels among you. You're accountable before God. We don't really know what the question is. But it's not about value or ability. Do you see verse 11? Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. We're interdependent, we need each other. But everything comes from God, who is totally self-sufficient. Okay, so it's not about value or ability, it's about order. But then there's a cultural application in verse 13. <coughs> judge for yourselves. Okay, now this is, this is to us, we can, we can judge for ourselves, okay? Uh, let's, let's see if we can answer it. Let's answer Paul's question here. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? What do you think? Is it proper? As you're looking around, as you came in today, if you think, oh my word. <laughs> Only person in here with a hat on his own. And it's a man. <laughs> so, does anyone have that thought this afternoon? Yeah. But what answer is Paul expecting the Corinthians to say? What, what, what answer is Paul expecting the Corinthians to say? How does he how does he phrase the question? Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Yes. He's, he's expecting them to say, no, it's not proper. It's not proper. There's something about the culture of the day. In fact, verse 14 says, Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? What do you feel on that in society today? It's sort of a bit yes and a bit no. <laughs> you know, there are some men who look very male with long hair. Sometimes that's questionable. Maybe the taste of their friends, but it's not a massive issue, is it? That of, if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. It's beautiful. But long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice in all of the churches but well, There are lots of other practices. There are lots of other practices. In fact, very, very few churches now have head coverings. You might go to a church wedding and see women with their hats on, but no one knows why. And if anyone actually thought that it was because men are head and women, then a lot of people immediately take their hats off. So there's a, there's a principle here that are being applied, aren't they? But the question is, well, how do we then apply these wonderful principles? Oh, we get to play the Jesus role. We get to reflect Father and Son's relationship by the power of the Holy Spirit. How do we then apply that in church today? Well, there's lots of different ways we might do that. But the point here is that men are to be men, and women are to be women. And what you had going on here is women coming in, perhaps feeling wonderfully liberated by the gospel and letting their hair down, and in those days, that was not a good thing. And prostitutes let their hair down. And it was a sign of kind of saying, I don't need men. And it was kind of a rebellious thing. And so Paul said, look, if you want to hold to your, the beauty of your womanhood, then cover your hair. Cover your hair. <coughs> um, and show that God has made an order between men and women. So as you pray and enjoy worshipping God together, and prophesy and speak into each other's lives, you're not saying there's no difference between men and women. You're enjoying it. Obviously, in those days, covering your head meant something, so much so that there'd be shock horror if you didn't. But it doesn't in the same way today. So we need to think through how that might apply. And if, as I think it probably is, between husband and wife, then you know, there are different ways that we could apply this today in terms of showing that um, we respect those God-given roles and there are certain things that are common in pop society. In Spain, it's not normal for the wife to take out his name, but in this country it is. Maybe that's an application. If you want to push it too hard, this could come up in question time. The point is that there are eternal principles here, that there is order within God himself, and therefore it is a beautiful thing that there's order in humanity that reflects his image. That's the point. And the order first began at creation, which God said was very good, where man was formed first and then woman. 
And man was given the commands, man was taught first, and then woman was created, and then together they were to respond to God and his word together. God could have made men and women at the same time, couldn't he? But he didn't. For a reason. To reflect his image more fully and beautifully. So surely we want to do that, don't we? We want to reflect that unity and diversity that God's given us, that interdependence where we need each other in different ways. We want to do that. So we come to what difference does this make in the church? We've seen a few ideas, but let's dig down. Point four. Still with me? Anyone wants to jump up and down and stretch their legs? This is all rather technical. It's important for us to live out, and as a minister of the church, for us to be excited about. So, on your sheets, I've put Titus chapter 1. And what I want you to think about as we read this, uh, you can also be turning to page 1192, where we see a similar passage in 1 Timothy 3. But Titus chapter 1. I want you to be thinking, what, uh, what is the church compared to? And this, as we look at the qualifications for an elder, what is the primary area that Paul looks to for those qualifications? If that didn't make sense, it'll make sense to say. Titus chapter 1, verse 5 on your sheets. The reason I left you in Crete, so Paul writing to Titus as a church leader in Crete, that uh, island. Um, the reason Paul, the missionary, left Titus to stay there as a church leader in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, church leaders in every town, as I directed. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an, since an overseer or elder manages God's household or family, he must be blameless. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, one who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose him. <coughs> See the family theme there? Okay, page 1192, 1 Timothy chapter 3. The only other passage we've got on the qualifications of elders or church leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Now, Paul says, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. Why? If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Do you see here? Well, the, the point itself, the heading, point four, family, is the same as church family. The, the immediate family, well, church is a picture of that immediate family, or the family is a picture of the church <coughs> that God has made. And so as far as I can see, the role of an elder in the church family is to be the role of husband and father within the family. Therefore, for this is the first kind of application that we get, and I think it's very clear. There are people who disagree on this, and we can take questions on it. But therefore, for a woman to become an elder isn't breaking the patriarchal traditions of the past. It's actually just as simple as a wife saying, I want to be a husband, or a mum saying, I want to be a dad. It, it's not that it's a, a breaking of freedoms. It's actually just, just not understanding the beautiful and complementary way God has made us. That we just enjoy being men and women by allowing qualified men to be dads over the church family. Now hopefully that begins to explain what we come to now as rather a tricky passage in 1 Timothy 2. It's probably the most kind of contentious passage on this issue of manhood and womanhood in the Bible. 
But I think as we go through those big picture principles, we actually see that this is a, a fairly easy thing to see. Okay, so 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. I have it there in page, page 1192. It is on page 1192. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Verse 11, Paul says, A woman, <coughs> talking... Uh, so just look on, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. So just a, across the page, kind of. Uh, verse 14, uh, in your Bibles. 1 Timothy 3, 14, just to see the context, what's he talking into? He's saying, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing to you with these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, in God's family, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is... is is God's picture of everyone redeemed in Christ. We're to be this mission uh, centre, reaching out to the world. So within the church household, specifically the church family, okay, back to 1 Timothy 2, verse 11. You see verse 11? It says, contentious phrase, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Why? I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay? So there's this, this instruction given, a practical application, a practice given. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. Why? Principle. Adam was formed first, and then Eve. The creation principle. <coughs> this isn't just a cultural thing. And, verse 14, when it all went wrong, Adam was not the one deceived, or the first one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Okay? Now, again, contentious passage, there's a lot to come out here, we're going to go over a bit in terms of time, because I just think this is important to work through, and I want you guys to enjoy these truths rather than be uh, fearful of them. But do you see that point? The same way that... Adam fails to look after his wife in the garden and to follow that good command and lead his wife. When Satan approached the woman, Adam just stayed back and said nothing. Well, so here, in terms of the primary teaching authority in the church, men are supposed to take the primary leadership role. Okay? Do you see... We're going to just skip over verse 15. I'm going to come back to it. We're going to skip over verse 15. You see, it just flows into chapter 3, verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer or an elder desires a noble task. Now the overseer is, and that is. So this is not about total silence. No teaching. We saw that before. Women are to pray and prophesy in the church and the public gathering. They've got a big role. We're all together to be speaking the truth and love to, into each other's lives. But in terms of the role of an elder in the church, that is just as the role of dad is for a man, so that is for a man. And it goes back to creation principles that Adam formed first, and fall principles of when it all goes wrong, creation order is reversed, and you've got animal teaching, woman teaching man. Now we've got verse 15. You have a look at verse 15. Just, just when you think, okay, I'm slightly getting this, but it's hard. <coughs> Paul says verse 15. You've got to remember Paul's writing to a church leader here. He's not writing to a congregation. So if we're finding this tricky, Paul and Timothy would have had conversations about this before. So he's writing in shorthand. But verse 15 you get, but women, women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. What on earth does that mean? Does that mean that women are inferior to men, but as long as they give birth, then they'll be safe? There's no way that it can mean that. Absolutely no way. It contradicts everything in 1 Timothy itself, let alone in the whole Bible. Paul was passionately clear that there's nothing we can do to earn our way to God. Why does Paul even mention it? Well, just have a look back over your sheets to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, the last verse on the back of your sheets. It's part of the curse, it's part of everything gone wrong, the distorted image. God says to the woman, 
I will make your pains in childbearing very severe, and with painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So, in the same paragraph, comment about this problem of women trying to usurp the authority of men, but also mentions this pain in childbirth. And that word through, when Paul said back in 1 Timothy 2, women will be saved through childbirth. I know there's a curse, and every time a child is born, you're reminded that, that in some way death entered the world through a woman. But in spite of that, through that, through all of that pain, which is there, yes, in a fallen and broken world, women will be saved. And women will not be saved as men. They don't need to become men to be saved. Women will be saved as women. And what's the, the ultimate thing that a woman can do that a man can never do? And so imagine if Paul was writing this to a church and explaining it all, he wouldn't just put it in shorthand for Timothy, women will be saved through childbearing. He'd say, but women, don't worry. You know, yes, the one thing that defines you as a woman as opposed to a man that is just utterly irreducible is that you can give birth and men can't. But even in your unique femininity, even in your unique womanhood, the way God has made you, even in that way, you're, you're going to be saved just as men will. You don't need to become a man. You don't need to take on a different role to be valuable in God's church. I want you to teach. I want you to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't need to, to jump into this different role. And suddenly what becomes a, a sort of slightly frightening aspect, you see, this is liberating. And in a culture where no one doubted the differences between men and women, because Paul could speak like that. Whereas in culture today, this feels a lot more fiery. Mm -hmm. There are wonderful examples of women who were wonderful kind of missionaries of the gospel at the time of the Reformation 500 years ago, when, when for the first time anyone was allowed to, to read the Bible in their own language, and then that got suppressed again. And there was an amazing woman who got tried and burned at the stake for trusting in Christ and reading the Bible in her own language. And she stood up, and she was, she was sharing her faith. And she referred to this passage as, I do this all under the created order that God has made her in. And she got a few nods. Whereas, so that became a sort of beautiful thing in that day. In, in God's household, both men and women, as we've seen, get to play the Jesus role. And both men and women have roles that imitate Christ and his gospel. And both the idea of submission and the idea of headship are words that describe Jesus himself. And it's not about dominance or over-dependence. <coughs> and so as we try and work out what was limiting factors of the past of a patriarchal, abusive society, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And let's try and work this out. This is about roles not being... And it's not uh, about ability. I wanted to show a video clip, but I've gone so way over time. We might, might do that uh, another time. We could, uh, might have to rethink next week, so I thought I've got through this far. But I was going to show a video of um, a couple of people. One, uh, a wonderful woman called Kathy Keller, married to, to Tim Keller, who went forward uh, for ordination. Uh, when she was a younger woman, and as she was doing her theological training, she came across passages like these, and she realised, hang on a minute, I, just, I can't rip this out. And she found that people she talked to and said, you know, what do I think about this, in her college, said to her, well, we start with the assumption that there's no difference between men and women. Okay, let's make the Bible fit that. She said, we need to start with the assumption that God's word is clear, and we take our principles from that. And then the other guy who was, who was interviewed in this video it was John Piper, famous church leader. And he said, because his dad was a traveling evangelist, his mum did most of everything in the household because his dad was away most of the time. And he said she was omnicompetent, and she was way more competent than his dad in almost everything. And so he got to learn, <coughs> as, as these principles were models, that it's got nothing to do with competence. Because when his dad came back, then his wife, uh, his, his, his mother, uh, 
happily sort of handed over to the dam and let him let him leave the family's throat. And he said he just saw this beautiful complementarity going on and, and they enjoyed each other in that way. Kathy Keller says this, she says, if the submitting role did not injure the equality and status of the son of God, then it's not likely to hurt me. What about applications for our lives, our families, our church family? Again, let's, let's give this some time, another time. But first of all, the main application is men should step up to the plate and be servant leaders in the home. I think that's the clearest thing. Ephesians 5 passage is just so clear, it's hard to dispute. And women should be encouraging their husbands to servant-heartedly lead them, especially if you're more competent than your husband, as probably most of the women here are. <laughs> um, we should be encouraging our husbands to, to take the lead and to think proactively about how to lead the family spiritually. And because the church is a family, qualified men should be elders, and it's not a right and a privilege, it's a responsibility and a sacrifice. And we want to raise up more and more elders in this church to create a family environment which is well-led. But we want men and women together to be able to give their thoughts on those potential elders. So that it's a joy to submit as a whole church family. We want people to serve according to their gifts. I've put on the sheet uh, 1 Corinthians 12, and I'd love us to spend a bit more time in it. So we might go on to do that next week and look at 1 Corinthians 12 and push back the series in this. Because in 1 Corinthians 12, it doesn't talk about the roles of men and women. It talks about gifting and serving the church according to your gifts. And there's all kinds of gifts. And under the, the loving leadership of the elders and asking all kinds of questions, it's not controlling. You're allowed, to, you're allowed to disagree. You're supposed to disagree. You're supposed to test everything I say against the scriptures. Uh, I, don't, I don't have uh, an authority here apart from the word of God. My authority here is entirely based on teaching the word of God. And so we're supposed to disagree. And but under that, that loving leadership of the elders, of me and Andy, and as we grow, trust us to encourage you to step up to the plate. There may be women thinking here, I don't know why this church is so weird and antiquated, but there's others here I know who, who embrace these principles and are nervous about stepping up on the plate. And nervous about doing stuff that might look like leadership or teaching in a usurping world. Of course women teach men in all kinds of ways, in loads and loads of ways. We get amazing examples like Priscilla and Aquila, where Priscilla in, in the Bible is teaching Apollos, who's, who's a church leader himself. And she's training him and filling in the gaps that he's missed in his, along, his, along the way. Of course women teach men. The question is, is it under the loving authority of the father figures of the church that we can do? It's not about age, it's not about ability. As we've seen, it's about these uh, principles being lived out. And there are some women here who I'd like to be serving in ways that might look like leadership, but that's fine. If your gift is leading, let them lead, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 12. And that's a really good thing. And I'd like to encourage that more. Um, I don't need to sin against your conscience. But actually, the main reason, but for some of you here who are thinking, you know, we're very conservative, you might be relieved to know that actually I'm, I'm trying to encourage some, some breaks with just a mere traditional conservatism so that we can enjoy each other's gifts more as a loving family God made us to be. I don't want to name names right here and now because these are private conversations and courage. But I do want us to be confident that we can step into the roles of praying and prophesying as long as we have applied the eternal principles, the creation principles that God has made us. Hopefully that makes sense. Ben, you've got a burning question. No, no, no just like equally, like, uh, I, I'm, I'm very interested in childcare. You know, and, yeah. And, uh, yes. you know, yeah. Um, and I, I don't see that as dumbing down or, or uh, an inferior role or anything like that. But see that as a privilege. I feel I have a gift. Yeah. I talked a little uh, bit about children and, and children tend to yeah. think I'm okay. So, 
Yeah, so it's both ways. And actually, yeah, the Bible doesn't say that women should be the ones in childcare. That's a cultural thing. It just happens to be that almost all the primary school teachers in my son's school are women. That's a cultural thing. That's not a biblical thing. Um, in fact, men should be stepping up to the plate and, and leading our kids and helping the boys to become men. Yeah. Um, and the women encouraging the girls to become women. We don't want to do stereotypes. Go on, we'll have two minutes of questions. Yeah, go on. Um, uh, I've got two things. One, I'm a bit confused about where the sort of principles and the business and culture uh, fit and all, how that all fits together, mm. and how you know which fits which. You know? uh, and I also, with the with the people leading the church, does that mean that leaders of the church have to have children? That's a very helpful question. Yeah, we uh, can you name two very important church leaders who didn't have children? Oh, and Jesus. Here we are. So if we take principle of this is, you can see he's uh, using managing. So I think one of the things we want to positively encourage men to see that uh, men and women to see that singleness is an amazing gift. I mean, if you read one twenty seven, you see Paul seems to be way more positive about singleness than about marriage. There are lots of beautiful and encouraging reasons. Um, but when we're looking, when we're thinking about elders, and I would love us to have single elders because I think it, it helps with the complementarity of the church. Um, we want to see whether they manage their households well in themselves. And I think it's, it applies in a similar way to dating. So wives looking for, or girl, single ladies looking for a potential husband should be looking at the qualifications in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 and seeing actually this is just a, a model Christian and we get to work out um, whether I'd be able to lovingly submit to this person based on those, those kind of characteristics. So um, I think it's actually a very similar process. Um, I think on the whole you can see whether a single guy is in control of his life, is, uh, is um, in terms of the leadership roles that he does have, that he's serving lovingly, that um, he doesn't have bits of anger or burst into rib, or he's not out of control, not chaotic, all those kind of things. Um, I think those principles apply beyond family. So because the church is a family, that illustration is the primary illustration. Yeah. Um, so with the with the principles in the He's obviously assuming in the way he's written that there's no risk there. Whereas if he wrote to today's culture, we'd all reply, no, there's no problem with it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, so when you're saying he's a big, it's when he says just yourselves, he's thinking in his head, there's no risk, so I can write just yourself because it's obvious. He's thinking there's no risk me writing this as a question and giving it over to them as jury because they'll all go, yeah. We know. But that doesn't show you how any bearing really on. Because I've got it, it should be that there should be no uh, because this is what created all of the 
But, um, but I would say that we've given those two broad principles. The, the order in God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son submits to the Father, and the created order, man formed first, and then woman. And um, I'm, I'm going to pause there because we've even gone over 530, which is way, way, way beyond. <laughs> and I know some are stimulated by this and some are exhausted by this. Um, but I'm going to I'm going to pray. Um, the reason I didn't feel bad going over time is because I think this is very important for us to to deal with the awkwardness of, yeah. to push through that, and then to enjoy the fullness. Of it, and we we're all at different stages along that line towards enjoying the fullness of it, and uh, it's worth taking a bit of time out to do it. Um, but we don't normally go into these nitty gritty issues, so if you're visiting and worrying about the weirdness of this church that goes on about the rights of men, I also want to say before I pray um, that I believe this is de definitely a secondary. I'm the chair of something called Love Stretton. A secondary issue. It's not primary, it's not the most important thing. I'm the chair of something called Love Stretton, which churches working together in Stretton. And um, I think only two of the churches within the eight in Love Stretton would hold as tightly to, to this as we do. And I love partnering with them in sharing the gospel. Um, so please don't hear me saying this is the main thing. I think it's a beautiful thing, a wonderful thing because I think God's word is clear on it. But I love, 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 love my brothers and sisters who disagree with me on this and hold <laughs> to the saving death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. So um, let's pray. Father, we pray that in our tiredness, uh, you would allow us to mull over these things. We pray that as we share a shorter cup of tea and uh, food together, that um, we would uh, talk about these things we pray more than that that it wouldn't just be enough this afternoon where this is but we we think it's true and god if you if we need to change our view uh, of scripture we pray that we would be like those Bereans that paul encountered in uh, acts 17 where they were more noble than even the thessalonians are amazing people because they went back to the scriptures and searched to see whether what paul said was true was true father we pray that we would be testing what is taught in the front against the scriptures, that we would grow to be better ministers of the gospel mm -hmm. to one another and to a watching world. And um, these potentially awkward conversations would actually turn out to be for our great joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his precious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.